Welcome and hello. This is Why Are We Talking About Rabbits, a podcast aimed at folks who, like Neo in The Matrix, you may feel like him sometimes, they feel a deep sense of dislocation. This podcast is for badass seekers who want to talk about heavy things lightly. We'll use theology, history, philosophy, years of deeply immersive experiences in foreign cultures, and we'll use all that to figure out how we got to where the heck we are right now, both culturally and personally. Our pod goes beyond rhetorical rabbits to quickly reproduce media memes and marketing widgets used by big media to make tons of money. Instead, we like to examine contemporary culture to be sure. We're going to look at small and big T's, truths embedded therein. Join me, John Hears, and our team of First Things Foundation field workers and lots of cool guests in the future as we wonder aloud, why are we talking about rabbits? This is episode two, Venmo and the Heart. Last week, we talked about the light people. Okay, those are folks who are bound up by this ligament called the Enlightenment. It's a movement that inspires to understand all things using reason and experience, rationalism and empiricism. Everybody out there is probably this person, okay? White people were the first light people. They just were. It's a hiccup of history. Maybe. I don't know. I mean, maybe there is, maybe it was because they were, their pigmentation. It seems odd, but white people in Europe were the first light people, right? And 300 years later, most of us are now light people, even when we're not white people. White, black, brown, red, all these racial divisions we now believe to be true. Well, those were created by the light people, by scientists wielding a very, very heavy and rather dull acts. In many ways, we are now suffering, okay, from this very bad attempt to make the brain the king of the body and the brain the king of the heart. And that brings me to Venmo. Yeah, Venmo. Venmo is a money app. Cash app is another one. There's a bunch of them. It's a thing that allows me to send you money easily. So recently, I've been included on a string of emails about Venmo, and it comes from an organization that's trying to, I won't name them, but they're trying to do something that in the email they call supporting black people and communities today and into the future. That's the string. We're on this string because we've worked with them, and they're they're cool. I mean, I got no problems with them, except for this email string is tortured and torturing. Is that a word? Lord. Okay. The string goes like this, okay? First, from the person who's clearly in charge, she's I think she's white. I think it's a she, but I can't really tell. It's not important, okay? But the person in authority is trying to create policy, and, and she says this in one of the emails, quote, as I mentioned in last week's email thread, I am redirecting my donation directly to colleagues of color. I invite my white colleagues to join me in compensating colleagues of color for the disproportionate amount of emotional, social, and intellectual labor they contribute to this 
flourishing community. It's nice. Then this boss type person continues, quote, To my colleagues of color, thank you for your inordinate amount of work. The work you do on behalf of your white community members. We acknowledge that we cannot repay you sufficiently for the time and energy you expend on behalf of this community. We offer what we can with gratitude for who you are and all that you do and all that you carry. End quote. Okay, this boss person, this person who's started the email string, then continues to the people of color. If you'd like to receive funds, please reply all with your payment info. Okay, wow. So if you're a person of color, send me your Venmo. And then she continues. I think it's a she. Quote, to my white colleagues, if you'd like to join me in making payments to colleagues of color, please use the payment information provided by them and send money directly to those individuals. When sending money, please be clear with yourself and whomever you're paying. Okay. End quote. When sending money, please be clear with yourself. This is excellent. Okay, because now behind this effort of sort of like personal reparations, she's he or she. I don't. I do know, but I just don't. I, I don't want to. I don't care. But it's out there, right? I just don't want to identify who this person is. It's not important, but it is important what this email string is saying. So, be clear with yourself white people. And then she lists what to be clear about. It's going to get interesting, right? Deep. Number one, is this going to be a one-time payment or ongoing? Two, will the amount vary over time? Three, how frequently will payments to people of color be made? Four, is there an end date or are payments indefinite? Five, how will you communicate if and when your willingness or ability to make payments to people of color has changed? That's the clear part that folks need to get in line and get cleared out in their head. And that's the end of the letter. The boss person who is writing this signs off with the words best and then their name and, and their title. And then I wouldn't even get into how many people Venmo and then there's all these arguments about who should get it. It's fascinating, right? The person who wrote this is a person with a title MDIV, Master of Divinity. Let me just say that part again. The person writing has a master's degree in divine stuff. Now, what do you think of when you think of divine stuff? I think soul, spirit, I, I don't know, maybe God. Things true but unseen. I got friends. And they're perfectly smart. And they're perfectly able to think about things divine. And you know what they think of? Spaghetti monster in the sky. That actually makes sense to me. That they might think of that. But Venmo? Yeah. Divinity and spirit and heart and emotions, are they all go together on this one, don't they? God is sort of like a giant good feeling. Right? Maybe up in the sky, maybe in your heart. But in Venmo? All right, so let's let's do our thing on why are we talking about rabbits, and let's take a look 
at the heart and emotions and divinity through the lens of philosophy and history. You want to do it? And after a little quick ride, we'll get back to this email string and we'll figure out, you know, how this personal reparations movement fits into this old world, new world dichotomy. And so a diagram. Can I get you to do a diagram in your head? It's a stick figure. You can do it. It's easy. Okay. In your stick figure, there's a head. There's a heart. Then there's that place where your legs meet called your your genitals, your junk. So your your stick figure in your head right now has a head, it has a heart. It's got that little, right, the region where the legs meet, your loins. Got it? All right. Now, this is going to be our canvas for understanding the old world anthros, the old world anthropology, how they understood man. Now, okay, up in the head, you've got what, Pretty much everybody across the board before the Enlightenment understood as something like an intellect, the mind, a thinking organ. That's that's the rational center, right? Your head. Down in the loins, down there where your junk is, the ancient world. And don't get me wrong, not every culture before 1650 all agreed on the exact same stuff. I got you. I'm, I'm generalizing in order to understand what's happened to us as new world people. But basically, in the ancient world, you find down there your emotions, your desires. Rene Descartes, who we talked about last week, and Aristotle too, they called it your animal spirits. Your head, intellect, thinking, your gut, your junk, the lower regions, passions, desires, emotions. Head, thinking, junk, passions. What about the heart? There's a heart in our diagram. Most of us today think the heart is where the emotions are, but that's an enlightenment sentiment. We adopted that as we took on this cult of the light. Okay? And you know what? The enlightenment fought back against itself a little bit because various poets and playwrights who were rather uncomfortable about the idea that all of life's, life's answers could be found in the mind, they kind of... Let's make it a little more gentler place. Let's put some stuff in the heart. But in the old world, okay, let's let's put some of the some of the sweet stuff that's in the heart. Let's move it up to the mind. The mind can't be so rigid, these poets thought. So if you thought that the emotions were in your heart, the the old world always knew them as in your down there, in your netherland, okay? You see, you can still see this today when you go to the old world. You can see in West Africa, places like the highlands of Mayan Guatemala and Haiti, you can, you can see that they understand your desires are rooted in this very passionate way. Love and lust, they're kind of intertwined down there. It's coming from down there. Hunger from down there, right? All types of desire. I saw this play out in Haiti when I was at a friend's and next door there was a huge party going on and the, and the friend, my friend knew them and he took me over there and it wasn't a party, it was a sacrifice. It was a voodoo ceremony, right? And basically they were sacrificing to the goddess of love, Erzuli. 
at that sacrifice, and I'm telling you, there it was wild. There were a lot of people. I, I don't know. I'd say 60 people, 70, maybe more, because there's drummers. They were they were packed around a pole, and the pole had a bull on it, and a guy was walking the bull around the pole. And people were kind of gathered around. And then up on a dais was a priest, a clear priest, and sitting next to a woman. And the woman was clearly the patron, the person who had called this thing. And she had called this major sacrifice together because she needed Erzuli to do some work. Well, as I watched, the priest was reading prayers over the consecrated woman, putting some blood on her cheeks and her head. Right, because it turned out that that woman had lost her husband. Well, he was alive, but he had chosen another woman. He was sleeping and staying with another woman. And this was an attempt to get him back. Right? Part of the attempt involved cutting the throat of this bull that wobbled and then boom, fell. And then they put a bowl under there and took a lot of that blood. And that was important. And the goal, you see, was to get Erzuli on board to help turn the desires of the husband back toward his wife, to move his junk, his passions, his love, his lust back toward the woman he was responsible to. In other words, you know what they weren't trying to do? They weren't trying to get the husband to go to an office where there was a person who would put him on a couch and that person had have a doctorate in some ology, psychology, or sociology, and then talk to him rationally or walk him through his thoughts in order to expose where he was being irrational so he would move back and do the thing he was supposed to do, which is go back to his wife. You notice no one's putting him on the couch. Now, this was a ceremony that was appealing to passions, to correct passions. Okay, They were going passion for passion, love for love, feeling for feeling. They were going to excite the gods and the goddesses to help this dude. It doesn't have anything to do with the heart. This wasn't about love. It's about passion, man. So when you feel really hungry, right? In the old world, people don't think, hey, man, your heart's really pushing you towards some food, right? That thing, your hunger is located in your gut, in your bowels, in your lower half, right? Lower here is important. Lowest down there in the bowels. That's where your desire to have sex comes from. That's where your desires for all kinds of stuff comes from. And now, let me stop you. Because I think a lot of people in our society right now are hearing something coming around the corner. How many of you are thinking that right now I'm about to say something about how bad and low these desires are? Can you feel a sin riff coming? Right? If you feel that I'm about to riff about sin... It's likely you definitely are a light person. You're a person who's been dipped in a really bad diagnosis about how human beings work. A diagnosis that Protestants of the New World often conflated with their New World enlightened buddies. They created a Puritan-like science that puts oh, good over there, bad over there. Desire is bad. This Manichaean world. That's sort of the world we operate in right now because it's very scientific, you know. It is or it isn't. It can't be both at the same time. 
right? And so if you're about, if you think I'm about to go all sin and everything, that's not the mindset of the old world. That's not what I want you to acquire right now. I'm always trying to get you to think about this old world mindset, and that's not what it is. The old world anthropology did not understand the desires as bad. They didn't. Wanting food is not bad. Desiring sex, not bad. But like all things, desire has a place. And desiring the wrong things at the wrong time is bad. So desiring a third car when you barely drive the second, that's bad. That's gluttony. And in the old world, what happens, the conception is, is that the demons or the spirits or the karma is that all of the energies out there in that world, right, they'll turn against you when you get your desiring off. When you do bad desiring, then you set loose other agents into the world that will eventually knock you down. This is an important point because your desires and your passions, when rightly ordered, are no different from rightly ordered rational thought. In other words, if your brain is just turning constantly, for instance, on the news, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. If your mind is in the habit of doing that, it's not rightly ordered rational thought. That's old world idea. Just like if your desires are like, yeah, I would really like to have sex with my wife, right? When everything is as it should be. Yeah, what's the problem? But if I'm just walking around randomly desiring every woman I can find, or if, in other words, I eat every single Snickers peanut butter chocolate bar, those things are delicious, I got problems. The head can go off just like the loins. They both screw up in the same way. That's an old world understanding. That's a wise old world understanding. You see, it's not your desire to sleep. It's the desire to sleep past your alarm. Pathos, that's what Aristotle calls this. They're neutral. They come from this part of you, this, this movement area called your bowels. That's the old world understanding. But what about the heart? We still didn't get there. So what are these? what's the old world philosophy on the heart? So let's go Greek on this one both old, old Greek and also the Orthodox Christian idea, okay? The heart is that thing that in an inexplicable way combines and intertwines the intellect with the passions, or a better way of saying it, the intellect with the spirit, or another way of saying it is the eye of the soul, the eye being that which can apprehend what is real. In Greek, the term is nous. In the Eastern Christian East, it's this thing, the noose, that's when working properly, but that's not even right, when cleaned, when attended to, because it's always working. It's just sometimes it's not attended to. When it's attended to, then that thing allows you to see clearly right whoop, into reality, right into eternity. It, it allows you to see right past the fluctuating energy of the emotions and right past the hard-edged rigor of the mind, right past and through and down the middle of love and truth, and straight into eternity. That's the concept from old world wisdom. The noose, or at least a latent awareness of it, 
That's the thing that men and women of all ages and cultures have in different ways set out to commune with, to enter into. It's the noose that sort of wakes people up to say, whoa, I am more than what I think I am. And when you start to catch that fever, like Neo in the Matrix, you start to wake up to it. What happens is, is you kind of literally want to abandon your body and abandon your mind and head deeply into this relationship with this thing, this noose. And it's the thing that in history has always been closely associated with God or the ultimate good. But don't call it the soul, not in this current age. Because the soul is something that Descartes and all the other Enlightenment philosophers tried to move out of the heart and into the mind. They, they tried to rationalize the soul. But it's not what it is in the old world. In the old world, it's a spiritual faculty that reasons. It's wisdom. Now, is it real? <laughs> Right? It's a thing, but is it real? How do you know it's real, right? And if it is real, isn't it that thing that we have to kind of both use to understand and also the thing by which we must be understood? Like there is this faculty in us? I mean, if it's a thing, it seems important. Eh, for our master of divinity, boss person on this email, it didn't feel like a thing, at least not in these, I'm telling you, it's not like five emails. It's many, many emails. It doesn't feel real in these emails. There's no appeal to it. There's an appeal to help people who look a certain way. There's definitely an appeal to help people who have experienced life a certain way because they look a certain way. There's definitely an appeal to other people with certain phenotypes who purportedly have a shared experience. There is an appeal to whiteness and blackness. There's definitely a reality in the emails. But I might argue it's less of a reality than the actual divine reality. The divine part is missing, man. And it makes me wonder if the MDiv person even thinks it exists. But lots of people from our human past have thought the noose exists. You know how I know? You know how I know? Because of France. I kissed a lady in France. And I kissed a man in France on the cheek. You know how they do it. And I did it also with a Russian. And once I did it in Istanbul. And you know what? It's the proof that the noose exists. Here's what I mean. When I'm doing that kiss thing, I'm actually doing something from the ancient Christian East. And that thing is, that thing is veneration. I am venerating the image of God in the other. See, when I kissed you in that old world kind of way, I am venerating the noose of you. The noose. I don't like in you. It's, it is you. I'm venerating it. And that is the God image in you. That's the thing that animals don't fully have. At least that's what the tradition says. That's why people don't greet pigs with a kiss. 
And that's why up until only in the modern age, they didn't greet even dogs with a kiss. And believe me, I love dogs. I had a great day named Stella. Great dog. Fawn. Getting another one if my wife lets me. I mean, I, yeah, she, she won't let me. But anyway, right? That kiss that you wouldn't give to a dog in the old world, that was reserved for humans. That kiss of three or two or one on the cheek, these are all variations on veneration. And if you've ever been to an Eastern Orthodox church, a Christian church, you'll see people also kissing icons, paintings. Same thing. They believe that in the painting actually resides, right, the reality of both the saint and the paint together. There's a mystical presence, just like in you, there's a presence. And that's why I kiss you on the cheek. I venerate it. For New Worlders, this is weird. It's kind of icky. For New Worlders, it's a type of idolatry almost. It's a kind of merging of God and humans in a weird kind of pagan way that made people uncomfortable, right? And guess what? That kissing on the cheek ended. Did you ever notice who doesn't like the kissy stuff in Europe? Which Europeans don't do that? The English, Protestants. The Dutch, Protestants. Germans, they'll do it if they're from Bavaria, but no. But if you go, if you go to other parts of Europe, especially if you go south to the old Catholic and Orthodox churches, they kiss like crazy. They kiss each other all the time. And these people, these light people in Europe currently today, 2020, the light people there, they kiss and they don't even know half the time why they're doing it. Right? The kiss is from the heart for the heart, from the noose for the noose. It's from believing that what you are is what I am. That's why I'm kissing you. And what you are and what I am is what we will fully become, God willing. And what will we become? Like God. The God in us allows us to be like God. It's the thing that allows us to participate in the divine. Now, is it there? That's the great question for people living in 2020. Maybe the only way out of our current problems. But it wasn't on this email string. But race was definitely on the email string. And in that email string, race was meant to motivate me. To motivate me to send money. I think it was to show I was in solidarity, to show that money is a good way to demonstrate your value of others. It's a good way to show empathy. You see, these aren't bad things. Venmo in this case, I realized, this is just realized it on the email, listening. Venmo is the manifestation of the old ancient kiss. It's the three, three kisses on the cheek for 2020. It's, hey man, I see you, 40 bucks. Hey man, I see you and I got a raise, 100 bucks. But what am I seeing? Because in the end, it's really not the same as the kiss. You know why? Because it's, it's superficial, sure. It's devoid of a natural brotherhood. But the worst part is, is that it's an invitation, the whole Venmo thing, it's an invitation to a capitulation. It's asking me to confess something. And that confession is, is you and I, 
we'll never understand each other. Your blackness and my whiteness or my blackness and your whiteness does not allow for union. I can't fully understand, but I can definitely write you a check. It's actually speaking the language of division. It says, yeah, we really can't share in any deep, meaningful way because your experience is so different than mine. You'll never understand. Love, schmuv. In the book Rape of Man in Nature, Philip Sherrard, who I love, go read his stuff. I mean, it's 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 good. It's, it's not like you're going to take it out and, you know, you're not going to sort of read it at the, at the, at, at Disneyland. Do people even, they don't, Oh, I think the NBA is going to Disneyland. Is Disneyland open? Check it out. Sherrard, uh, not an easy read, but a great read. In his book, Rape of Man and Nature, he says, There is in us a difference between our inmost self and the self which I mistakenly call my everyday thinking self. Uh Uh-oh, two of us. And we've created a difference between them. It may be that modern man has a split awareness and that his everyday thinking self, his everyday thinking self, that's me and you going to the store, has become impervious to and incapable of communing with his inner self, his noose. My everyday thinking self is the only self I know. And worse, I burned the bridge that leads to my other self. I can't even... I'm not even aware that such a thing exists. He goes on to say, this is the illness of modernity. This is the sickness that afflicts the light people. It's what depression looks like. And it's the cause of a deep dislocation and utter dissatisfaction with the world around us. And then he says, and now I'm paraphrasing, and the way that a material being must now search for satisfaction is with material stuff. We become consumers. This is backed up in a really interesting book by Dimitri Stanilo. He's a Romanian writer. He writes on the passions. And in it, he says, quote, Objects by nature are finite. They pass easily into existence and easily out of existence. And how do they move into non-existence? By consumption. Right. Think of my hat over there, my Orioles hat. It was born stitching and then I bought it and thus began the destruction. It's not going to be here forever. It's already tattered. I wear it all the time. I sit on it in the car. Right. Things easily pass into existence and then into non-existence and they do it by consumption like corn out of the ground. And when a human is seen as an object, he writes, When a human is seen as a thing, well, the depths of its noose, the depths of that person's unfathomable being, that thing, it's hidden. It's buried. It becomes hidden to the observer because both only know themselves as material. Yikes. Black material, white material, brown material, red material. We're just going to consume each other. One of the things that was told to me is, is why can't you just pay somebody $50? It's is a great way. I mean, a lot of people do things out of guilt. Well, I'm consuming that person. Therefore, my ends now so that I can get rid of my guilt. 
they're not really in relationship with me. They're just being consumed by me in order that I might grow. Let me end with a little story. It comes from the Annals of the Old World, circa 1825. It's an actual event in that beautiful, mystical, old world way. And it's about a cat named Seraphim of Serov. So the story starts on, well, it starts and ends on a very cold day. It's early evening. Two monks are walking on a wintry road from their monastery to the nearest town. Seraphim, the old and wise monk, think big beard, gray, is walking alongside a brand new monk, one who has just entered the monastery that week. He's a novice. The walk is brisk. The young monk is cold. His mind is running. Ugh, how long until this town shows up? The old monk is saying nothing. He's praying. From behind them, a sleigh approaches. Its bells ringing louder and louder until both monks can feel the pound of hooves on the ground beneath their feet. Turning around, the novice sees a woman. A beautiful woman with windswept hair and a magnificent fur coat, high cheekbones, and an incredible ruby chestnut complexion. She sits there high on the sleigh, smiling. Her curves are magnificent. She'd, she slowed the sleigh, and the driver is hushing the horses so she can speak. Hello, fathers. Bless me, please, she says. And do hop in and let me give you a ride and shelter you from the cold. Well, the older monk, Seraphim, breaks into a smile. It's a broad, rich smile. He looks with sparkling eyes at this beautiful woman, and he replies, We are a fine, good lady. Let us walk a bit more. It is good for us. The woman smiles, looks at the novice now, directly, forcefully. Her eyes are piercing his parts, his passions, right? And it all reminds him that he has left the world this very week, and with it, such women as this. Oh, no. He says nothing. Okay, fathers, I wish you both the best. Pray for us. We'll continue. Your prayers are strong. The old monk makes the sign of the cross, and the horses regain their gait. And they charge ahead, and the beautiful woman looks over her shoulder and waves an energetic goodbye. And Seraphim and the novice continue. The novice thinks again of all the stuff that that woman just stood for, all the things he's left behind, her beauty, her coat, her gloves, her eyes, her skin, her lips, yikes. And into the silence of his many thoughts, he hears the old monk. Goodness, did you see her? A beautiful woman. And the novice looks up. Oh, he's confused. I could not take my eyes off of her. Not even for a minute. Now the novice is starting to think this might be a joke or something. So he doesn't say anything. He looks at the ground. He's trying to deny what he has heard. I mean, it's, it's Father Seraphim. Checking out checks. Did you see her, my son? Now the novice 
goes all in. I did, father. She was good looking. Fine. Dang. And there's silence. Lots of it. And walking. And silence. Until down the road a bit, the novice looks and sees a tear. And not more, not, not just one, running down the face of the old monk, Seraphim. He's alarmed. And he feels as though for sure he made a mistake. But before he can say anything, Seraphim turns, tears flowing, and bows all the way down, a deep bow, all the way to his knees, his forehead to the ground. And now the novice is like, wait a minute. Father Seraphim is bowing all the way. What's happening? He's babbling. He says, kind of get up. He can and then Seraphim stands before him and says, Please forgive me. I have failed you. I have failed you. And the young monk is perplexed. I failed you because I think only of myself. I was selfish. Forgive me. Now the novice speaks up. Father, I, I just, I saw the woman. No, you, I, my mind was, yeah, I was thinking about her. Like I, I definitely was. No, it is not you, my son. It is me. And then more silence, and they keep walking. And then they reach town. And as they do, they come up on a large house, one with many, many rooms and loud music. And there's lights inside, and it's a party. And as they pass, a boy runs out and says, Come in, come in, it'll be fun. At least for one minute, Father, please. And Father Seraphim goes in, and the novice follows him, and as he gets inside, he says, Wait a minute, this is the woman's house in the sleigh. And the party's for the children, and I know these children. These are the orphans I've heard about. And this woman runs the orphanage, and she sure is beautiful, and she sure is beautiful. Yeah, it was right then that the young monk was struck struck with the notion that the beauty on the road was not the beauty that was being beheld by the old monk. He, the old monk, had seen her noose, her soul, shining as if real, standing in front of him. In a moment of weakness, the old monk, Seraphim, had, real, had imagined that the novice had seen it too, her shining soul. He had imagined that they were seeing the same thing. And that's why he asked them if he could see it. But there were two beauties and only one body there. And there were two sets of eyes and only one spiritual reality. The old monk, he saw one, the spiritual reality. The young monk saw the physical reality. You get it? It's Venmo. It's Venmo. The novice is Venmo. The elder? That's life. That's the struggle. That's the sweat and tears of trying to see things as they actually are. But the novice? Venmo. That's us. When we Venmo people because they're black. It's not enough. That's Georgian, and that means to you the victory, and that's the Georgian Republic that's speaking to you right there. This is the table made into a podcast, made into a conversation about heavy things done lightly. 
That's our pod for today. Thanks for coming along. Watar, that's why are we talking about rabbits, is brought to you by the creators of First Things Foundation, a nonprofit that works in some of the world's toughest neighborhoods, immersing in order to create momentum for local change makers. We call those change makers impresarios. They're badass. What we do is serve their vision of a better life. So, Share Watar with your friends. Hit us up with a solid review on iTunes and everywhere you get your podcasts because your love for us allows us to serve others. Nakvamdis, hasta luego, kambufo, peace out.